0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being with us tonight. Would you just surround us? Would you just anoint what we're doing today? And that we may be able to understand and to embrace this thing called aging. And then how we can serve and minister. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you are getting older? And of all the people that you know, how many of those people are getting older? a lot of those people. And that brings us to the reality that aging is indeed a reality. There's only going to be two things that will stop our chronological clock from ticking. And that is if we die or if Jesus comes. And you know that we can celebrate our 39th birthday as many times as we want. We can not tell people our age. Hello, Mrs. Elizabeth. Or we can uh, even fudge our age. But reality is that we 're getting older. we can sort of buffer the effects of aging. Uh, we can exercise regularly we can have a good diet we can take all of our vitamins, but we still age and you know I could uh, use a little dye and color my hair and do a little surgery, move these bags under my eyes, but i 'm still aging. Are we depressed yet but you know i I would hope that would not be our response and Matter of fact, one of the objectives that uh, I want us to accomplish tonight. Hmm. hmm, That should be moving. It was earlier. There we go. Is that we would embrace this journey that we call aging. And we can do so when we have a very vibrant and confident faith. And we'll talk about that. But aging is real. In 2010, there were 40 million people that were 65 and older. And I heard recently that is increasing by 10,000 per day. And of those 40 million, 10 million, or 25%, had to have some help carrying out their daily activities. It may be shopping. It may be doing household. It may be paying bills. It may be one of the activities of daily daily living, such as eating or mobility, are getting dressed, taking a shower. And do you know who provides that care? 90% is by family members. So the reality is that most of us, there's a good chance that most of us are going to have hands-on caring for someone. It may be our spouse, it may be our parent, or it could even be our children. And you notice I title this, Preparing for Aging for Yourself and Your Loved Ones. And we could be in that whole generations of our children, ourselves, our spouse, and our parents. Although we're going to be probably slanting more taking care of our parents, but recognize all that we're talking about is going to be preparing ourselves and those that we love for aging. So aging is real. And the key thing is that we could be prepared. And the second objective is that we're going to identify in very practical ways the emotional, the physical, financial, and legal preparations for aging. We simply want to be prepared. You know, we're prepared in many ways. We get insurance on our car, we get insurance on our house, and we pray that we actually will never, never use that. But, if suppose if you went shopping down at Walmart, and you came out, and suddenly your car was totaled, you know, it would not be a crisis. It would be inconvenient. But because if your insurance would cover that, you could quickly recover, and you're prepared. And that's what we want to do in this whole process of aging. But this can be overwhelming for us. And the third object, main objective is we want to identify resources and agencies that help, can help us in this process. And we'll share a lot of those next week in the next section. Well, what do I bring? Let me share with you what I bring to the table that sort of, uh, quote, unquote, qualifies me to talk about this. One is I have a mother that's 94 years old. She still lives by herself in a small trailer behind my brother on the family farm in Arkansas. She still does a lot of things for herself. She needs help. But I also realized that I could get a call any moment of a fall of a stroke that would drastically change the level of care that she would need and how that would impact on my life. Secondly, I'm an aging father and husband. And I've done a lot of reading and experience in, and doing, in getting myself mentally prepared because I don't want my family to be unprepared. I happen to be also a husband of a licensed social worker, and Frankie has worked a number of years in the hospital setting and has shared a lot of circumstances in which both patient and our family has experienced enormous emotional and physical pain that was unnecessary because of lack of preparation. And then I've been in the pastoral ministry for almost 40 years. majority of that time I spent as an Air Force chaplain. Uh, I retired in 1998 and moved to this area to be close to my children and God blessed me with the privilege of pastoring the First Baptist Church which down the road on 377, uh, First Baptist Church, Roanoke, uh, for seven years. And then the last six years, I've been a hospice chaplain. And so I've spent a lot of time in this end-of-life journey with people and their families. I've observed a lot that were prepared, and many, many more that were not prepared for the end of life. And so these are the topics we want to talk about. Uh, we'll look briefly at the profile of we call ourselves, those of us that are 65 and older, the older Americans, and we look at a profile of that. Uh, then we're going to talk about faith. Now, let me just say, all these slides that you, you will see, you don't have copies of. I tried to select the ones I thought was most important for you. So we're going to talk about faith and how vital that is to our well-being, not only now, but certainly through eternity. And then we're going to talk about looking at when there are signs that there's a lifestyle change that's evident, that's changing in our loved ones. How do we have that talk? How do we help understand or move beyond uh, just uh, providing them? You don't get that, Ben. Thank you very much. And then we're going to look at living options. If there is a necessity to change, what do we do about that and how can we handle that? And then we're going to talk about how to pay for care. We're going to look at the cost. And then... In this section, we'll talk about Medicare and what Medicare pays or does not pay. And then we're going to talk about the caregiving role. If we have to do hands-on caregiving, are we parenting our parent? And we'll talk about that. And then we're going to open our legacy drawer, and we're going to see all the documents that we really need ourselves, and we need to be aware of what our parents have. And then we'll look at resources and agencies, and then we'll look at a survivor's checklist of what to do at the time of death. Now, I've given you an outline. I've also given you a three-by-five card, and that is if you, as we go through this, if you have specific questions uh, that you would like answers to but don't want to voice those, write them down. But let me also encourage you to ask questions, uh, to share experiences. I want this to be uh, inact- interactive. I want to be learning. I want to hear your inputs as well. So let's begin with looking at a profile of older Americans. As you see, this is, came from a source document that came out last year, 2010, uh, by uh, our government, it says older Americans, 2010 key, key indicators. And these are the five things they say about those of us that are 65 and older. First of all, we're living longer. People who are now reach the age of 65, if you're a female, it says you'll live 20 years longer. If you're a male, you'll live 17 years longer. In the year of 2007, the average age, if you put all men and women together, the average age was 77.7. It's estimated that 2015, that's going to be one year longer, 79 or 78.7. So we're getting older. Look at this chart. This shows, you see 2010, and you see the, the big upward. And that's all of us baby boomers hitting the 65 and older. But also notice interesting, not only 65, but look at that 85 plus. You see how that's increasing? And that will become significant. And this chart shows the specific age. We see around 2010 or 45 million. And then by 2030, that's going to be 150 times that of over 70. So we're living longer. Well, how do we live? 72% of the men are going to be living with their spouses. 42% of wives are going to be living with their spouses. What does that tell you? Yes, the implications are: first, our wives are going. To, our wives are going to outlive us. That also suggests this: that most likely our moms are going to be the primary caregiver for our dads, and we are going to be the primary caregiver for our moms. This chart shows that. You see, uh, the left side is men, the right side is women, and you, you see the, uh, the 72%. You notice that, uh, and look at the women. I thought this was very interesting. Uh, this is, you see the breakdown, uh, of, uh, by ethnic group. This is the, the white and these, the others. Look at, it says 13% of women are going to be living with relatives of, of Caucasian women. Notice the differences in the other ethnics. Two and a half times more women or moms live with their children than with Caucasians. This is where they live. 65 and over, typically 93% live in the traditional community. That is traditional home. It may be their own home. It may be home of friends, relatives. But overall, only 4% live in nursing home. But look at the 85 or older. See how that jumps and then look how many more are going to need long-term care. And go back in your mind, look at that chart and seeing how that 85 continues to go up. So that's going to suggest for us in the future, more and more people are going to be needing long-term care than presently. Not only are we living longer arrangements, but we're also living richer. In uh, 2009, the average medium income for 65 and over was 43,000. Last year, the medium income of all families in the United States was 46,000. This chart shows... Uh, the breakdown, last year in 2010, the poverty level for two, a couple was 15,000. So this tells us that less, around 7% of the people live in poverty. This is the source of income. Notice how that particularly almost 60% of the people are dependent primarily on Social Security for their income. On the average, an average couple is 37% of their income comes from Social Security. But we're also living healthier. This survey did a self-assessment and asked people 65 and over, rate your health. Over three-fourths says they were good or in excellent health. And if we look at this, we see, again, this broke down by ethnic groups, that whites consider themselves much more healthier than other. And these are the chronic illnesses. Fifty percent of us have high blood pressure. Fifty percent has arthritis. 25 are over a third has heart disease and 25% has cancer. But we're also living with more health costs. Uh, you see that 2006, the latest statistics says that the average family or average person is $15,000 in health care compared to $9,000. Look at this chart showing the difference between 1992 and 2006. Notice that we're spending less money staying in hospitals but more paying doctors and outpatients. But notice the difference in prescription drugs. That is more, that is doubled. Now, how do we pay for that? This chart, so particularly look at, if you will, this particular chart that gives the total. 55% comes from Medicare, 7% from Medicaid, 19% out of pocket. And then the other 19% says other, which includes maybe private insurance, RVA, which could mean that people are paying out of pocket. For their healthcare, anywhere from three to six thousand dollars a year. So that's sort of a brief overview of who we are for those of us that are 65 and over. I want to talk to you about how vital faith is in this whole process of getting old. As I said, we can start talking about getting old and we can really become depressed. But I would suggest to you, if we understand who we are and whose we are, then we can embrace this whole thing of aging. Remember the scripture tells us that we're aliens, we're pilgrims, we're passing through. When we accept Christ as our personal Savior, that God implants in us that place called home of heaven. And then we anticipate that we long to be there. He reminds us that, that we are people of hope. Because we're focused in the direction of moving toward being with God. You know, we gather together on Sundays and we worship, we sing to Jesus, we sing about Jesus, we talk about Jesus. But you realize as people of hope that one day we're going to be able to see Jesus face to face. And if we keep that in our focus, as we are, this life can be called our highway to heaven, that we're moving along. Now, will there be obstacles? Will there be bumps in the road? Of course. But as people of hope, we cling to the fact that we're moving forward and that one day that we're going to be able to see Jesus face-to-face. And that brings us to the reality is that death is not the end of life. Matter of fact, death is only the beginning. This world, these few years that we spend, is the pregame. It is the warm-up. But our ultimate life begins at the moment we step into eternity. And because of that, we can be people of joy. We can be people of anticipation and celebrating. Those of us that are 65 and over, recognizing that we are closer to heaven than we've ever been, chronologically speaking. And that should raise an anticipation and joy. Uh, a number of years ago, Frankie and I lived in, in uh, Mandan, North Dakota, which is right beside Bismarck. And it was about a 24-hour trip for us. And as we would be going home and getting close, we were exhausted. or I was exhausted. I did most of the driving. And sometimes we'd hit Interstate 94 and go west to- toward Bismarck. And I remember there's a little knoll that would go over that knoll, and we could see the lights of Bismarck in front of us. It was still two hours away. But I remember when I saw those lights, I became rejuvenated, joy and celebration, excitement because we were almost home. And I think that's what we as Christians should embrace as we become older, that we are closer to that place called home. We also can cling to the promises that God's made to us. He says in Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for those who love God. And then he reminds us in verse 29 that we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Where we bemoan pain and issues, that God is interested not in our comfort, but he's interested in building our character. And sometimes even in our aging process that we have to go through all that. But we also, in the end, recognize all this life is temporary that one day that we're going to embrace Christ. So we have that strong, that vibrant, that confident faith that we can have a tremendous mental attitude change about growing old. And when we do that, we'll see in a little bit how much that affects us physically and how much we can embrace. And so our response is that we nurture our faith. And we're going to talk about it in a how we can do that, how we can nurture our faith, because we continue to nurture our faith in connecting with God and connecting with God's people, then when we face difficult times of life, then that faith is going to nurture us. And so when we face even growing old, that we'll be able to embrace it, we'll be people of hope, we'll be people of excitement, we'll be people of joy, and people of anticipating the coming of Christ. But what I also want us to understand is how much comfort it is to know where I'm going to be. I don't want any of us to be like, uh, for those of you that came in a little bit later when I introduced myself, uh, I spent the last six years of ministry as a hospice chaplain. And I will share uh, various examples of that uh, as we share today. I don't want us to be like the lady I met uh, several years ago. Her father, or as I her stepfather was in a nursing home in Carrollton. He had cancer, but he also had some issues of mental. Uh, he was very forgetful, confused. He was a truck driver by trade. And oftentimes, as I would visit with him, he thought he was in Colorado, waiting for his manager to make another assignment to go out on the truck. He was married. His wife lived in McKinney. And this daughter, as I stepdaughter, had been part of his life for over 40 years. And when I met the man, he said, well, I've never been much of a church goer, but I welcome your visits. And I guess it was probably about six or eight months before he died. we had a lot of good visits. We had a, good, a lot of good conversations. And after every visit, I would call his wife, talk to her, tell her about the visit. I never met her personally. But early one morning, I got a call saying he had died. And the family wanted me to come. So I went to the nursing home, started talking with him, And it was really obvious that they were doing pretty well. And then the daughter asked me this. Do you think Dad was a Christian? Now, I don't know what my facial looked like when she asked that question, but inside, I just sort of collapsed. And I wanted to say to her, you have been part of his life for 40 years. You have known him when he's been oriented. I haven't. And you're asking me that question. And then, as I began to reflect, I became very saddened for her because she had to live the rest of her life wondering if she would ever see her dad again. So I submit to you that faith, a vibrant, confident faith, is the most vital thing that we can have and that we can share with those that we love in order to deal with this thing called aging. With that in mind, let's recognize that pain and aging sometimes go hand in hand. Some sources of it is physical. We may have a disease that causes physical pain or simply because over the years, these body parts wear out and they start aching. We have emotional pain and uh, as we begin to lose our independence, as I mentioned earlier, that 10 million over 65 have lost some independence, and they're grieving. And the more independence we lose results in grief. We also grieve because family and friends are dying. As I mentioned, my mom is 94. She's the baby of 10 children. And so she had 20, there were 20 in-law uh, brothers and sisters and all in-laws. And about three years ago, the last one of those died, it happened to be a sister-in-law. And I remember her talking about it, and she's saying, you know, I'm the only one left. And you could sense that grieving that I'm an orphan now. All my family is gone. And there's also children, as they watch, particularly if their parents have some form of dementia, grieve because that parent becomes less and less their parent. But there's another pain that we don't often talk about and deal with, and that's a spiritual pain. It can result from, I think, loss of assurance or lack of growth, losing connection with the faith community, and losing connection with God. Now, the problem I observed, particularly as a hospice chaplain, is that this particular pain was often dismissed and overlooked or misdiagnosed. Many times, our spiritual distress manifests itself in physical pain. And the medical world saw it physical and would give the various drugs. But unfortunately, the the spiritual pain was never really resolved. And a lot of people never being able to experience peace and comfort because of that. So, spiritual health is a vital sign for us. <clears throat> we live in a medical world, don't we? What's the first thing if you go to the doctor's office? What's the first thing they do? Fill out, besides fill out paperwork. They do all the vital signs, don't they? And those are important. We call them vital signs because they give some insight into what's happening in our bodies. And I saw this particularly with hospice patients who uh, were non-responsive or their responses were not coherent. Because our nurse could examine, and if there was a spike of fever, then it gave some indication maybe there's an infection going on. If the blood pressure went up, that was probably an indication of pain. And so these are vital. But I want to remind us that if we monitor our spiritual health, it is even more vital than that because it affects the very core of our being and the totality of who we are. Our spiritual life affects us physically, emotionally, but it also is mind, body, and soul. Now, this has been affirmed by secular studies. Look at these. study of patients who have cancer said two most important things is that they would be free of pain and they would have peace with God. And many people think more about their faith as we age, and particularly if there is a life-threatening disease as that disease progresses, then we think more and more about faith. And then the reality is that many... People reported to health professionals, the way they deal with their, their disease and their life is through faith. And how often have we heard people say, I don't know how I could get through this without God. And that is the reality. But it's also affirmed by Scripture. Look at what the, the psalmist says. I will lie down and sleep at peace for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. If we have that dynamic connection with God, we can sleep better. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 121 is that God never sleeps and God never slumbers. So if tonight that you have something on your mind that's occupying that we would want to be concerned or worried about it, you can say to God, well, you're going to be up. So what's the point of both of us being up at night? I'm going to go to sleep and let you take care of it. In addition to that, peaceful hearts give life to the body. Look what the proverb writer says. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but in rots the bones. Those are some things that's positive in our relationship with God. But what if that's not so positive? The psalmist in Psalm 32, talking about confession of sin, he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength zapped like the summer heat. Which we can identify with that statement, can't we? But what he was saying, because I refused to confess my sin, then there was physical evidence, a physical pain expressing itself. And look what Paul says as he gave us the instructions about the, observing the Lord's Supper. He says, for anyone who drinks and eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That's why some of you are weak and sick and a number of you falling asleep. And though we know that word asleep means some have died. And so when we don't have that dynamic connection with God, then it affects us physically. What's also affirmed by scripture for our eternity, I believe the Bible is true. It is truth without any mixture of error. And the Bible contains wonderful, great news. And this is one passage that illustrates that. You know it, John 3.16, you know it by heart. In that wonderful news, as you read this verse that says, I can have eternal life. I can have the assurance that when I die, I'm going to spend my eternity with God. But you know this verse also contains some bad news. Because it says not everybody is going to have that experience. It says some people are going to perish. And it's a matter of choice. The choice is whether or not we believe in Christ. Whether or not Jesus is our treasure above all things else. Is our relationship with God ritual or relationship? Is, Is it based upon how good I've been, how many times I've gone to church? Or is it based upon that personal relationship with Christ? I don't know how many families I've shared with over the past six years and over my total ministry of when people have died. Everyone, I think, almost everyone have said, Dad, Mom, whoever it may be, has gone to a better place. And, you know, I wish I could say to every person, don't worry. Everybody is going to a better place. But in reality, the scripture says that is not so. But what great comfort it is for your family to know where you are. As I've comforted families who were very obviously Christian, I said to them, you have not lost your loved one because you know where they are. But how much distress it causes if we think that is not the case. So that's why I challenge us to think that our spiritual well-being, our spiritual health is so vital as we deal with this thing called aging. Look at this. This tells us how much faith improves the physical quality of life. This is based on secular studies, by the way. Uh, and you can just look through that. I, that is, if you can read, uh, David, if you can read those slides, uh, that is listed on there. And you can see the various things that how faith, dynamic faith affects us physically and how that if we do these things, there's, we don't have to fear of getting old. We can embrace it rather than being distressed by it. Now, when we go to the doctor and he examines us, we may he may check our temperature and we have 103. Our, our blood pressure really may be up. And those are indicators something is out of norm. And so then he will start exploring that and seeing what is causing the physical distress in our body. Well, there are also things that cause spiritual distress in our body, in our lives. One is the expressions of lack of hope. No meaning to life. Another is the inability to forgive self and to forgive others. Anger at God. And you can read those. Now, the reality is that These becomes flags, just like a a temperature becomes a flag to a medical doctor he wants to examine what's going on. These also becomes flags for us as we listen to our parents, as we listen to those that we love. That if we hear these kinds of things, then they become a flag for us. Let's start exploring what's behind that. You know, there are many passages in the scripture that gives us tremendous words of comfort. To me, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, is one of those. But in the middle of that, he says, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he assures us one thing of life, and that is, you and I are going to have difficult and dark times. So how do we deal with that? And the rest of that says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He says, we have that dynamic connection with God, and we face these dark times of life. We don't have to be afraid because God can take away that fear and he can give us courage. We don't have to be distressed because he can take away that distress and he can give us comfort. And he can bring all those people around us. He can put skin on those people and they come and put their arms around us and they cry with us and we receive peace and comfort. So even in the midst of dark times, even though we're having some distress, we can also in the midst of having peace and we can have comfort. But as I said earlier, a lot of times when we hear this, or see this distress. We diagnose it as something physical rather than something spiritual and it passes by. So how can we find out where people are spiritually? We're going to use a spiritual assessment tool that is actually developed by health professionals. It was actually developed by doctors and nurses who were obviously believers and who realized the value of spiritual health. We're going to use the acronym SPIRIT and we're I'm going to keep this basic same framework that the original people developed, but with Frankie's help, we developed questions that are a little bit more applicable to us and are questions I think that you can use in sharing with your parents. A couple things about this assessment. One is, you may already know all these answers about your parent, and you may not need this at all. Secondly is, don't sense that you have to go through this line by line all at one time. But it's something that you can be equipped with, and over a period of time, find out. Third thing I would say is, don't assume, unless you know for sure, for sure, about the spiritual well-being of your spouse, your parents, or even your children. Now, why would you be using an assessment like this? Why don't we just say, do you believe in God? Well, in my opinion, that is about as fruitless as asking a five-year-old, do you love Jesus? What, 98% of the people in the United States says they believe in God? But what we want to do is encourage people to verbalize their faith. If, as an adult, they cannot verbalize their faith, then that means maybe several things. That they're unsure of their faith, they're confused about their faith, or maybe they have no faith at all. So this assessment allows us to discover what is the basis of hope. Is it ritual or is it relationship? Spiritual, this is sort of the overview beginning. Look at the spiritual belief system. Look at the kinds of questions. What gives you meaning to life? What are the sources that you draw from in order to cope? Right now, in the midst of your illness, or you're growing old and you can substitute whatever in that word for ill, what are you thankful for? That can give really insight into people's lives. And when you're afraid or in pain, what brings you comfort? And then the next. The P brings us a little bit closer. We're talking about now personal faith. This is the big system. Now we're going to say, tell me how your faith makes a difference. How practical is your faith? If I can use this word, is your faith only, quote, fire insurance? Or is it something that you can live by and draw strength from all the time? And then you ask, do you have any spiritual needs that you'd like to talk about? We also recognize, simply because we're Christians doesn't mean that we may not have some questions, we may have some uh, unresolved guilt, we may have sense and we need to confess, we may have some issues we're confused on. But this gives us an opportunity to ask that question to voice and give them indications. The I stands for integration into a spiritual community. If they believe in Christ, does that belief bring them to a community of people of like faith? What I've discovered is this, as I, particularly these last six years as a hospice chaplain, I discovered that people that was, if they were disconnected with church, they were also very disconnected from God. And so we can ask the question, does your pastor or church members visit? And how often? Again, particularly if your parent lives in another state and you're not as familiar, this is a question you want to find out. How much is that church involved in their lives? And then what are some things that you wish the church would do that are not doing? The next question is how they practice their faith. How often do you get to go to church? As I mentioned, my mom is 94. Uh, she is probably not, her church is probably within a mile of her. She's not been to church in probably five or so years. So, then I would want to know from mom, if you don't get to go to church, what feeds your soul? And then the next part of that is, would you like to have communion or the Lord's Supper? There's a, a patient that I visited. She had ALS. She was on a feeding tube. Uh, she was also an event. Uh, she could no longer talk. She could understand. She was Catholic by faith. And every Sunday... Her church brings her communion, and she takes spiritual communion. She doesn't take the elements, but her church says it is so important to them that they bring that to her every week because that nurtures her faith. And so we're asking those that we love, what's nurturing your faith? What's missing from nurturing your faith, and how can we be part of that? And then another I for implications of medical care. Are there specific things that your faith would prohibit? Uh, We've had circumstances which the parent was a Jehovah Witness and the children were not. And if you're familiar with Jehovah Witnesses, do not want transfusions. So that's an important kind of information need to know. The T stands for information in terminal planning. What life-saving procedures do you want or not want? I think that's a spiritual question. Because we're asking them, do you want to be on the vent, do you want feeding tubes, etc.? And the reason I think it's a spiritual question or spiritual issue is this. If I have a longing to see Christ, if I know you're my personal Savior, but yet I say I want everything to be done to keep me alive, even if I'm on a vent and don't know it, then I think that's a flag that says, what's going on in your faith that you want to exist like that rather than to go be with the Father? Uh, You may differ with that, and that's okay. And then, uh, have you had any prearranged uh, funerals or burials? And that gives you an indication or an opportunity to talk about what kind of burial they want, cremation or traditional. And I cannot tell you the number of times that we've dealt with par- uh, children, their parents have died, and they don't have a clue of what. But this spiritual assessment allows you to really be able to discover where your folks are and where you are. And so I would just challenge you to use that for yourself, to ask yourself those kinds of questions. Wherever stage of life you are right now, what gives you hope? Are you anticipating? Are you a person that is bogged down by the issues of life, or can you rise above them? Because you're drawing from that deep well that Jesus talked about with the uh, woman at the well, the Samaritan lady, that that coming from the very depths of those resources of faith, that you can overcome the challenges and the difficulties. We also have to keep in mind this. As we mentioned earlier, that we're living longer. And medical science is doing all this wonderful stuff so that we can live longer. But not necessarily that we're living better. And so we consider that. Well, after we've assessed faith and understand where people are, then how can we maintain good, strong, confident faith? The first is the assurance of salvation. Over my 40-plus years in the ministry that I've heard a lot of people say, when they've asked about, are you going to heaven, that they will say, I hope so. We'll just have to wait and see. I mean, I've lived a good life. Many years ago, I went through evangelism training, and one of the questions they asked was, if you should die tonight, and you stand before Jesus, and he should ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And we recognize there's only one answer to that question, but I discover a lot of professing Christians seem to not know the answer. But First John 5.13 says, These things are written to you who believe on the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And if we are not sure about our faith, if we're not positive that we have that deep personal relationship with Christ, then we will not be able to find help and resource from God. Because we'll be confused all the time. And we will also be very subject to Satan's attack in our life to destroy us and for him to conquer us. So the first place I think we have to begin after we've done this assessment, if there are flags, if there's indicators that people are not sure, then that's where we start. Let's start, start with our own life. I remember when I was in North Dakota, that I accepted Christ when I was about 11 or 12, and then about 20, I was about 22, and I started working with our pastor there. We were doing, he was mentoring me and doing a lot of varied things, mission work, sharing faith. And one day I had to share with him, I said, you know, the only thing I can share is confusion. Because I really don't know if I am a Christian or not. And he was very gracious and spent a lot of time in prayer and discussion and helping me work through that doubt. And finally saying, you know, if you're unsure, then just simply ask Christ to come into your life. And so if you're dealing with that or if if your parents are in that position and you don't know how to work through that, then see Ron and Charlie and other people on the staff will be helped, and I would be able to uh, be available to help you help them so they can come to that point of knowing they are assured of their faith and then we have to have a connection with God now there's a lot of ways we can do that first obviously is worship, as I mentioned to you that my mom doesn 't go to church anymore, but eight o 'clock every Sunday morning, she and Charles Stanley enjoys worship together now. <clears throat> coming together to listen to Ron better than that? Well, of course it is. But for her, it is a wonderful opportunity to maintain that connection. So, obviously, if we're going to be connected with God, we have to be actively worshiping him. Worship him individually, on a daily basis, and then also worshiping him corporately. But we also have to be involved in Scripture. And particularly, talking about your parent, if their eyesight is a little bit... uh, Uh, is challenging, then make sure they have two things. One, it's a readable Bible, a good translation that's readable, and it's in large enough print. When I started uh, working with a lot of people that that had some memory issues, memory losses, I started using this. This is a children's Bible. And it, it has pictures and it has a story and quick synopsis. And I discovered as I would sit down and read these little short stories how well it communicated in addition to that, uh, is being able to put the Scriptures, forward. if they can't read, then let them listen to it. This is the whole Bible on the MP, on, for MP3 players. And for those of you that came in late, uh, this is what I used in serving MP3 player, little speakers. Uh, we were listening to Alan Jackson sing as, as we were come, as people were coming in, but also I have Scripture here. And this has a battery life of about 15 hours, the MP3 as well as speaker's. And you can just sit and let them listen. Well, my mom has dementia, and she probably can't. Let me take sort of a sidestep here. First of all, always assume your loved one can hear you. Medical people says our hearing is the last to go. Secondly, I've told every family, I can't validate it uh, medically, I've simply said, assume that that person can hear everything you say and understand completely what you're saying. Now, they may not can uh, make any response, or if they do response, it may be out in left field. But assume that. A lady I was visiting for a while, I don't recall how long I visited with her, no response. Uh, she had a music player. The family loved to play music, and I would play her music, or sometimes I'd play my music. And I would visit, talk, no response. One day, uh, she was Catholic by background. One day I said, I'm going to share the Lord, uh, read Psalm 23 and do the Lord's Prayer. And I, when I finished the Lord's Prayer, I said, Amen. And she did the sign of the cross. The first and only response that she ever had, at least to me. But I was convinced then that God's word is more powerful than that dementia. And it can go through the fog. So let's never underestimate. And so, if your parents can't read, sit down and read to them. If they're not responsive, sit down and read to them. The other thing, not only scripture, but that is music. Music touches us in ways that just blows our mind. It has blown my mind. One lady I visited, she, uh, the only relative she had that we knew of, was a nephew. And he did not visit very much, so most of the visits were us. She had Parkinson. She remained in bed most of the time, except to go eat. And I learned from her and from him that she was a Nazarene. She had a faith background. And one day I sat down and I started playing her music. I started playing songs, Blessed Assurance, Amazing Grace. And for almost an hour, every song I played, she sang right along. As her Parkinson's, uh increased, her health declined, she could get part of the words, but we would sit and listen. And then finally, when she could not respond at all, I would simply go and play those songs over and over, because I knew it touched the very heart of her being. And so, for all of us, as we connect with God, music is a wonderful way to do that. Third, another way is devotional material. It may be our daily bread. Another tool that I used, particularly a lady that I visited, she was Episcopal, and she loved... Uh, her book of prayer. And so I bought one, and we would read together various things out of her faith that brought her encouragement and, and opportunity to nurture her own faith. Finally, there's service. A lady that I knew in a nursing home, uh, I don't know whether she was a Christian or not, she had her electric wheelchair, but she was the chief hostess. And everybody that came in, she was the first person to meet them and find out who they are, get them involved, and she would be that person, and that's the way we can continue to serve. Another way may be, uh, since most of our older parents probably don't uh, deal much with email, but they still to write cards and send words of encouragement. And you might just simply buy a box of cards uh, and stamps. One of the things that Frankie and I have done for my mom probably the last couple of years, she likes to remember everybody's birthday. So we buy a calendar, mark everybody's birthday, We have a variety of birthday cards for children and adults, stamps, addresses. And so mom is able to remember everybody's. And that way, that keeps her serving other people. So we have to keep a connection with God. Another way we maintain wonderful health is connection with the church community. And I'm going to break this down in two parts. One is, particularly as we look to our parents, if your parent lives in a community where their church is, and remain there. Make sure the staff knows the condition. Call them up and tell them, Mom is sick or Mom has just been brought on hospice, Mom has just happened or Dad just did this. Keep them involved and let them know. If there is a mailing list from the church, make sure her name is on it. Or if there's a Sunday school class, make sure her name or his name is on that list so they can continue that connection. And make sure the pastoral team is visiting. Another lady that I visited, she was Catholic in a nursing home. She was alert, but non-responsive. We assumed that she knew we were there. And she's Catholic. I mentioned that. But when I would go to visit her, on her uh, little nightstand was the newsletter from her church. I thought, isn't that interesting? It's certainly not from her, but it validated to the family that people of her faith was keeping her connected with that community, and so if we're going to have that vibrant faith, we have to stay connected now, if our parents is unable to do a lot of that on, then that becomes our responsibility to make sure that their church stays connected with them. Now, another thing that we found I found often is that the child is living here, uh, mom is in Florida, she gets sick, and we bring he brings her here. And then when she dies, they're going to go back because that's where the father is buried. And so how do you make connections? Well, the same can keep connected with that back home church. Let them be aware of the conditions, what's going on. so that Because you're going to be asking them to be involved in the funeral. So keep them advised if there's a mating list, there's a Sunday school class that they had connection with. Keep them involved in that. And also, in this area, particularly if they are a different faith in you, get them connected with the church of their faith. And so that they can maintain that nurturing and that connection on the level that they understood. Another Catholic lady that I visited, she was a charter member of a church, Catholic church in Plainview, was a member of that church for 50 years. And so I started talking with her and learning all this information. Her son was outside, so went out and started talking to him, and he declared himself to be an evangelical Christian. And he said, you know, I'm really concerned about mom's well-being and her belief in Christ, and, and obviously a legitimate concern. And I asked him, though, have you called her church to let, her know, let them know of the condition? No. I said, why not? That, that is her connection. That is her church history. That is what she has drawn strength from. And it would also be important for her to have the rituals of the church which they would call anointing the sick. We used to call the last rites, but now it's called anointing the sick, to have that ritual done that because she receives tremendous amount of strength. So keep connected. The other is if they're in a long-term facility, uh, there's also that way to keep connections, that everyone that I'm aware of has a Bible study. They have worship services. So often it becomes your opportunity to go to find out the leaders of that, to introduce and saying, my dad's in room 304, he wants to come to Bible study, he wants to come to worship, and make sure that you get there and invite him. Usually at every facility, the activities director is in charge of the religious services, so that becomes the contact point. But all of these ways are simply ways that we need to stay connected. If we're going to have a, a strong, vibrant faith that allows us to look toward every circumstance and every season of life, with celebration, with joy, and with hope. We have to maintain this vibrancy that keeps us connected with God, that keeps us connected with God's people. And this is the whole objective, is that we have peace with God. The reality is that our problem is separation from God. And the Bible reminds us that for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And it is that sin that separates us. The Bible also reminds us that the wages of sin is death, or in other words, the payoff, the payback. what we get for our sin is separation from God and if that the Bible says if that goes unchecked throughout life, then we will spend eternity separated from God. But you know we have the solution, and that our solution is good works. every religious system. Every religious thought outside of Christianity attempts to make us God because they say we can earn our own salvation. We can serve ourself. They spell salvation as D-O. Christians spell salvation D-O-N-E because it was done for us for Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross. That when he entered this world, he was fully man and he was fully God. As fully man, then he could represent us on the cross. And he volunteered to be our representative, to take upon himself our guilt, our shame, our pain, our suffering. But being fully God, he could pay the payment of sin. And then he extends the invitation for us to join him, and it is as simple as ABC. Admit that we're a sinner, believe that Jesus died for our sins, and then commit ourselves by accepting Jesus Christ. So... I hope that I have planted some seed in your mind, helping you understand that our spiritual health is vital to us because of the impacts it makes upon our physical health. But more importantly, that we can then have that assurance that we will be able to spend eternity with God. And the longer you and I live, the longer that we travel down this highway of heaven, and the more that Jesus has become a treasure, the greater longing it should be for us to see Jesus face to face. I can only imagine. Any thoughts? Let's shift gears. Let's talk talk about the talk. When it becomes evident there's a lifestyle change that is going to be happening, it could be like this, that... Uh, I'm speeding to get there before I forget where I'm going. Sometimes we develop those mental issues or it could be to stop driving. How do you tell dad? Dad, you've got to turn the keys over. I heard one man say, if they take my keys, they might as well kill me because I'm not going to give up my keys. So when you encounter that, those kinds of circumstances, what do you do? So let's talk about some, how do we get into that kind of discussion? Uh, What are some flags? that we're to look for that may help us do that. How do we open the subject? Let me give you three scenarios. First is the what if. This is maybe like this. Mom, what if one day you needed full care and had to move and couldn't make that decision for yourself? Now, this would be a conversation that you would have when that situation did not exist. It is non-threatening. It is not real. But it's the opportunity just to say, what if, let's talk about. Let's open up the channels of communication. That is the most ideal. The second scenario could be an indirect approach. That uh, you may have just gotten the news that a relative has uh, had a massive stroke. And the doctors have said this is permanent. They're paralyzed. Uh, there's no way that the mom can take care of daddy anymore. So the family is faced with the decision of what to do. And it could be, well, mom, if something like that happened to you, what should we do? Or, I was reading this article about advanced directive. Do you know much about that? And that gives you an opportunity to talk about things like CPR and etc. The third scenario is one that we don't want to be in, and that is the most direct approach, a crisis that happened. You've gotten a phone call, something's happened to dad, and your mom says, I can't take care of him. And we've got to do something. And we've got to, and the hospital wants to dismiss him in three days, and so we've got to make a decision. So how can we avoid that last one in particular? Let's talk about some ways of doing that. One is <coughs> picking a time where you want to be interrupted. <coughs> a couple of things I think is important to do before then is one is that you sit down and put down your thoughts in writing just thinking about what what kind of things that do I need to talk to mom and dad about? If you have siblings, it might be important that you have a family meeting before you meet with mom and dad so that everybody is on the same page. And thirdly is in this particular scenario that where that there is not an immediate uh, decisions to be made, you're going to say to them that we're not going to make decisions today. This is just thinking. This is talking out loud. So there's no pressure and there's no emotional things that have to be involved. The second thing is make sure that you listen to your parent because this is about them. So you're talking about keeping focused on their concerns and their issues that you want to make sure that they understand you're not trying to ram something down their throat or your ideas, but you want to know their concerns. And so, what are their fears? What are their thoughts? These are the six biggest fears that most people who are aging have. I, I did not include that in notes, so I'll just give you time to look over that. I discovered that particularly the first one, I've been asked that question a number of times, uh, particularly uh, people that are coming on hospice with uh, COPD; They have problems breathing, and they're saying, you know, death is going to be terrible. It's just going to be a time thing, and I'm going to be gasping for breath, and I don't want that to happen. And they will want us to go over the process of dying. And once we've done that, and sometimes doing that several times, it brings them comfort because that's never usually the case at all. And also you want to help the parent to retain whatever control is possible and encourage the smallest change possible. Uh, we were involved, Frankie and I, in another church in, uh, in a Sunday school class, and an older gentleman came part of that class. and He lived over around Possum Kingdom, lived by himself, uh, greatly involved in his church, uh, had a great circle of friends. And uh, his family virtually insisted, demanded that he move here. And so he did. And we noticed the longer he was there, the joy began to fade from his face. And he became more sickly because he was forced to do something he did not want to do. And as a result, his physical health really went down. Phrase your concerns as questions, and if possible, uh, use I statements. And here are some examples of those I statements that you could use. Again, that is not in your notes, but... You can take a moment to look through those. And by the way, if if you want any of these copies, just let me know and I can bring them to you next week or get them to you on Sunday. Everybody got that? And then be open and clear with facts. Don't lie or hide information. We were all very disturbed on the hospice team when we had people coming into hospice and their children said, Dad doesn't know he's dying. He doesn't know we're bringing him to hospice. So don't mention that word. Don't mention anything about him being dying. We don't want him to know. Uh, Again, this is my opinion that that person has a right to know and because they will make maybe different decisions. So it's important as we're discussing whatever uh, the scenario is, that we're open with them about what's really going on. End the conversation when they become tired or leave the conversation where you can revisit again. And then the last thing, if the parent changes the subject, then know that you can always come back to it later. Because when they change the subject, that obviously saying it's uncomfortable at the moment, so let's talk about the weather. Okay? So what subjects can you talk about? Again, I'll just give you some suggestions these may not be for you. You may have to add some, subtract some. But also, again, we talk about what are the needs and concerns. That, uh, that you may be concerned how much it's going to cost, and they may be afraid of what's uh, of falling, as I exhibit. But they may have goals in mind. They may have uh, some unresolved relationships that they, that they want to talk about or deal with. Uh, I remember ministering to a lady. She was a <clears throat> in the nursing home. She had Parkinson, and her husband was at home, and he was deaf. And the son was trying to care for both of them. And they would come and visit the mom. And when she had family around there, she would just whiten up. They would take her out to eat. She was just so happy. And they bring her back to the nursing home, and she was miserable. And so finally, one day, the son told us, I'm taking mom home. Was it safe? No. Were both of them happy? Yes. And the son was willing to accept that phone call in the middle of night and said, your parents just burned the house down and both of them are dead. Because that was their concern. And he was willing to listen to that. Daily activities. Uh, These things, and we'll talk more about that on the next slide, but these may be anything from uh, household chores. If they're doing or not doing those kinds of things, uh, or the ability to get out of a chair. Uh, Where are they going to live? Uh, If that should come of being, they have to move out of their home. Where would they want to live? Uh, Where would they not want to live? Do they want to live with children or not? Or would they prefer an assisted living or even nursing home? Finances. I know this is delicate, uh, to ask your parents how much money you got, uh, and maybe you can't do that. I have not been able to do that with my mom, uh, so that's very delicate. But there are other financial issues you can talk about. You need sort of know a ballpark of what they could afford, but other financial things to talk about uh, is insurances. Uh, are Do they have a power of attorney? What happens if uh, you can't uh, make financial decisions? Is there somebody who can do that in your behalf? Do they have a will? Health care, uh, same kinds of issues. Uh, find out if they're really satisfied with the health care they're receiving uh, from their doctor. But also under health care, is there a medical power of attorney? Uh, again, things to explore. Do they want CPR? Do they want all the life-saving events or no? And, and the, another subject is that of death. Uh, what's, what do you want, Mom? Have you all prearranged your funerals? Uh, do you want, what kind of music do you want? I was talking to um, a few weeks ago a man in our men's class, and he was going. His mom had called him to come home. I lived up north, and said, "We're going to talk about my funeral, and I'm going to share show show all the songs I want and everything." And so, and I thought that's a good mom. And that's what we ought to be doing. But sometimes it takes some encouragement for us to bring that out, and a lot of people don't want to talk about that at all. And these are some ten signs to watch. Personal care. Uh, if you if your parents are close. And you can visit them on a the regular basis. What about, is the hair always messed up? Do they wear the same clothes every day? Uh, what about bathing, hygiene kinds of things to look at? Uh, housekeeping. When you walk in, you walk your hands across the cabinet. Do they sort of stick because of all the stuff? Or you open the fridge and the green stuff jumps out? Or if they have pets, is there now suddenly a strong odor? Have they been able to take care of the household housekeeping kinds of chores? Meals and appetites. Uh, are they eating? Are they losing weight? Uh, when you look around, all you see is TV dinners. Or did mom say, oh, I burned my arm three times this week cooking. Or I put something on the stove and, and I went out and forgot about it. Memory. Uh, do they forget names, appointments? Uh, do they find themselves uh, repeating the same question or the same story over and over? In communication, uh are they forgetting names? Or is their handwriting changed? Or uh, if you get them a new phone, I don't have a clue to work this. And so they can't pro- begin, they're losing the ability to process information that they used to do that. Mobility. Particularly if your parents are, uh, you live in a two-story house. Now, what about those stairs? Are they being able to manage those stairs? Uh, has their pace changed? Is there a fall risk? Have they failed several times? Depression. Uh, is. Are they no longer involved in those activities they used to be involved? They're withdrawing from all that. Or there's a greater anxiety and irritation about them. Medication. Are they forgetting to take their medications? Or they're overtaking? Or here's uh, four or five medications that hasn't been filled. Finances. Uh, are you getting calls from uh suddenly a creditor has gotten your name and they're calling and saying, Your mom hadn't paid this bill and is six months behind. Or are you going to mom's house and you see all these thank you notes from these Christian organizations? That's another big sign to be aware of. And then driving. Uh are they having more fender benders or the speed? And I think probably a key that I would use that if I had a three year old, would I let my three year old drive a ride along with mom or dad? Or is it time but they change the driving habits. But the big thing that prevents a lot of us from dealing with this issue is called denial. That's not in your notes, uh, but it's a very common sense. I, and I've discovered that denial cuts across social, economic, all kinds of things, that people just simply deny what's happening to mom and dad or to a husband or wife. I've seen families denial that, you know, well, dad's forgetting to take his medicine, so we fill the pill box. Well, you can you can do the pill box, but recognize if they're forgetting, they're going to forget to take in the pill box too. So that's still denying. Uh, So siblings, particularly, I noticed this, that uh, if the sibling uh, is living in another community and, well, every time I call mom, she's just fine. I don't know what you're talking about that she's going down. So there's that great denial. There's also the denial from the spouse. Oh dad just had a little bit of fall. No big deal. We can handle that. And these are just some evidences of denial. Again, they're common sense. At the last uh, I mentioned, I was a hospital chaplain. I retired from that uh, end of May, and but the last funeral I did was for a lady who had been in our service. I guess about a, uh, less than two weeks. When she first came in our service, she uh, was non-responsive, so I never been able to talk to her. But I talked a lot to her daughter. Uh, her daughter, uh, the mother lived in a little house right behind. And the daughter could look out her back door into her mom's front door. They lived that way for just probably several decades. She was the only child. And so I started visiting her very often as her mom was declining. And several times the, the daughter would say this to me. That said, my mom kept saying, why are you carrying me all these doctors all the time? So all I want to do is just get into a hole and pull the dirt on or jump off a cliff. So what was the mom saying? And what was the daughter's denial that things were happening in the mom's life and she simply did not want to deal with that? So I encourage you to look at those signs and uh, to maybe that will help uh, prevent denial and so that you can be able to respond. Well, what are the living options if something happens that you have to make a change? It could be a nursing home. This happens to be Lake Village down uh, across the 407, or it could be a special housing uh, that's available uh, if your zoning laws allow you to do that. Before, let's talk about sometimes we make some what I call unfair promise to our parents, uh, and that is this, that it may be, be done under emotions, that a mom has died, and will you promise me that you're going to take care of dad? Or promise me that you'll never send mom to a nursing home. And we make those decisions often under that emotional or even under guilt. But what if these kinds of things happen to your parent? Or what if this happens to you? That you're not able to give that kind of support. Now, what do you do with that promise that you've made? Well, I would suggest to you that you look at this... Uh, Long before you're placed in that circumstance and consider these ideas as a fair promise. I included that in your notes so you could take those and look at them and hopefully that they could be a benefit for you. Again, we're talking about making this kind of decision when there's no emotion, but being able to communicate to your mom and your dad that you're certainly going to take care of them. If that involves a nursing home, then you're saying to them that is the best care that's available. And what are the levels of care? Well, there's independent of uh, aging in place at home or senior living facilities that are independent living. Are there, and I include this one because this often happens that uh, there may be a, uh, a fall, a short rehab, but that becomes a flag that this has happened once. It is more likely to happen again. and The next time it may be worse and they may not be able to return home. So I include this, although it's a short term, but I think it's just simply a flag that some decision may have to be made. And assisted living, that may be living with you or may be living in a facility, nursing home, a long-term care, or maybe a special unit that if there's dementia or Alzheimer's that may be available, and and quickly we'll cover about hospice. Independent living, living at home. If we could draw our map, all of us would want to stay at home, we want to die in their own bed, wake up in the eyes of Jesus. And we looked earlier that majority of people, at least right now, is going to be living in conventional going to living in their own home, your home, someone's home versus a nursing home. Uh, but there's always that possibility. So, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but our goal is, how can we keep mom and dad at home until they die? Well, there's a lot of services that's available for us. Uh, I'll share more in detail that next week as we look at specific resources and agencies. But there's home care services. These are paid services that come in do housekeeping, companionship, etc. Or there's home health. If there has been a fall, if there's a rehab, uh, and the, uh, our medic- Medicare will pay for home health if it is for skilled in nursing or therapy. There's meals and transportation. Meals on wheels can provide. And there's... At least in our area, there's transportation that will come to your door and take you to the doctor's offices, et cetera. There's adult daycare that provides the resources that you see there. Our, as in Louisville and Flyer Mound, there's the senior center, that if they have that mobility to get there, all kinds of activities. And there's a, if you're concerned about them falling and they live by themselves, there's a medical alert system, and that's what we have for my mom. And for me, it costs $35. I think that's what it is in this particular area. But those are just a quick overview of some... I resources that are available to allow us, if we can, to keep our parents at their home and aging at home? Well, here's some factors that we need to consider in that. First of all, the safety issues. Uh, if they're aging, do we, will we need to do a lot of renovation at their house? Do we need to put in the ramps and widen doors for wheelchairs and that sorts of things? And how much time and how much resources do you have in order to make that kind of thing happen? And this becomes important. Other factors is cost. Uh, Can they stay in their house? Uh, I've talked to families and talked to people who said, you know, mom and dad live in this house. They're still paying their mortgage and they need this for medical. And we can't afford both. So we're going to have to sell their house. They're going to have to move into an apartment so that we can afford the medical care and the services involved. So in deciding whether they're age at home, obviously the cost is a huge factor for us to consider. Location. You know, it could be that 20 years ago when mom and dad retired, they bought this beautiful retirement home on the lake. But dad's died, and now mom can hardly drive. They live 20 miles out from the, from the hospital. We've got to do something about that. And so you have to consider a location if, whether or not, they can actually stay there and age at home. Loneliness. Maybe where they live, that their neighborhood has changed. There's nobody around that they know anymore. And they're isolated. And so the, to staying there is really not a good option because it would be better to be a, with other people that they know. And then the future, if there's already a, a diagnosis, what's the prognosis of that disease? Is it going to, uh, are they going to decline to a point which we're going to be forced to move into a different thing? So that gives you some, at least some ideas of saying, well, we can't stay here, but we have some time so we can start planning for another. Well, if they can't age at their house, how about aging at your house? Moving in with you. Some considerations. Can you and the rest of the family get along? And that is really, really, really important. Uh, for Frankie and I both, our moms have lived with uh, uh, their, their children for a short period. My mom lived with my brother for about a year, and uh, there was not there were not fusses and fights. At least. I was not aware of any, but it was just a very, very uncomfortable place to be. I remember uh, the late uh, lady that we had in our service, she lived in South Dallas, uh, had cancer, went into the hospital, and could not go back home. She needed care, so she moved to Carrollton with her daughter. And uh, she could. Uh, the daughter still worked, but... The mother could stay at home a lot by herself. There was a grandson who lived there. Some, he was there often. And there was a, uh, they had a caregiver coming in two or three times a week and then we hospice was coming in. So she could live. But she was, would tell me, I'm so uncomfortable being here. I don't even feel like I can go to the refrigerator and make me a sandwich because all this belongs to my daughter. And every time she wanted to have her grandchildren over, I can't do that here because my daughter doesn't want all this, her house torn up. So I have to, Go back to my house. Somebody has to take me back to my house. We spend time there with our grandkids and then some bring them back. So sometimes living with you may not be the best option. You may be forced into that, but also can you really get along? Uh, do you have room? Is it one, if, it, if you have a two story, is there something on the first level with a bedroom and bath? Or are you going to have to build something? Or are you going to have to, again, do the safety rails, etc.? And what level of care is required? If both husband and wife are working and dad moves in, can he stay by there himself? Or are you going to have to hire somebody? Can you afford to do that? Or do you want strange people in your house? Lifestyle. And I've just given some. Suppose that your mom smokes and your child is allergic to smoke. What do you do? And... These are just some lifestyle clashes that could come into being. Other things, what's the cost, not only financially, but emotionally? What about siblings? Do they agree with them moving into you? And do they also agree to support you? Will they support you financially? Will they occasionally coming over and taking care of mom and dad so that you can have a respite? And then one thing that I've heard people who have been in that position wish they had done is decide beforehand when it's time to quit and we have to make a different decision. That's a tough tough time to do that. But if you can do that beforehand, and I think a good way is to find a support group or talk to some people who have cared for their parents at home and saying, did you ever reach that point in which you had to make a change? How did you do that? What was the criteria? And I understand this is an emotional, heartbreaking decision, but it's also a decision that may have to be made. Other housing options. One is in-law apartments. Sometimes the people buy homes that, uh, with this in mind, that one day mom and dad are going to move. So we're going to buy a house that has that in-law apartment. I knew a nurse who worked at a local nursing home that... Her daughter, they built an in-law apartment for her, her own entrance, kitchen, etc., and she and her dog was perfectly happy into doing that. This is called echo housing. Uh, it's a 500-square-foot 5, house, approximately $25,000. Uh, probably a lot of places the zoning wouldn't allow that to happen, uh, but that is an option in some places. Another option to consider is several... O- Elderly people share the same house. So so suppose your mom, their house is paid for, but she has a couple of friends who are are declining. They all move together, hire a caregiver, and all three share the cost. And I think that particularly when we consider the uh, the uh, that we're growing older and we're going to have to be more creative in looking at uh, what are the options available. And next week we'll talk about how much this costs uh if we go to nursing homes, et cetera, and that may be an eye opener for us. Uh senior apartments. Uh all over in Louisville Flyer mound, you find these for independent living. Uh assisted living. It may be facilities. Uh but there are a lot of places to have group homes in residential areas. Uh, you may not even be aware, but uh there's some in Louisville uh, uh over in Peachtree uh alpha of 3040 or 2499. Uh They're just houses in a neighborhood the person has bought and converted them to caring for people. They have about six or eight people there, and but you drive by, it's a normal residential house. And that allows mom or dad to live in a place that's still home versus more institution. Uh, Continuing care retirement facilities. These are communities that have independent assisted living, nursing homes, and even Alzheimer's care all in the same facility. So they just... Stay in the same facility, but uh, just move to different levels of care. And then, of course, there is the nursing home. And say so next week, we will talk about uh, the cost of all this. But let me conclude this evening, uh, take about five or so minutes to talk to you about hospice. Uh, hospice is a flag word. A lot of people and a lot of doctors uh, are very much opposed to hospice. Uh, many will say simply hospice is a death sentence and ignore that as a resource, um, I would submit to you that uh, hospice is this. It's an approach by which we provide compassionate care along with medical care for those who are suffering. And the whole emphasis of hospice care is comfort care. Uh, hospice does not deal with the disease itself as far as curing it, but it does become very aggressive in keeping the loved one comfortable. And what hospice does is to sometimes redirect or redefine hope. Uh, there's no longer, the, the doctors have said, there's no longer the hope of years. And so what we're hospice does is redefine that hope in saying hope is defined in quality of life, defined in building and maintaining good relationships and finding peace and comfort. Uh, the benefits of hospice is that it provides care wherever is needed. Hospice provides care in individual homes, independent living, assisted living, wherever a person is. And, uh, we look at managing those physical d- symptoms, but also involved in ministering to the physical, to the emotional, as well as to the, the spiritual. And hospice affirms life. As I observed, it, hospice is, uh, allows a person to die as naturally as we were intended to do. And nothing that hospice does impedes death or accelerates death. We allow death to naturally happen but also to do it under peace and comfort. The criteria is that a person has to be terminally ill and to be certified by two doctors that they have six months to live. Now, important thing to keep in mind is that that six months is based upon the disease and not the person. By that I mean the doctors will say, here you have this stage of cancer that if it goes untreated, this stage of cancer normally takes a person's life in X number of months. Now, depending on who that person may be, they may live three months or they may live two years with that disease. And another fallacy about hospice is that uh, people will die shortly after coming on hospice. Well, uh, we've had people on hospice one, two. Matter of fact, one lady that I visited for five years on hospice. A little unusual, but... uh it's not unusual at all. And Medicare has very defined rules by saying that at certain stages, you're recertified. Uh, after 90 days, you're recertified. And if there's still the decline that's going on, then we recertify and you stay on hospice another 90 days. And then you're recertified. And then 60 days increments after that. And so people can stay on hospice for a number of years uh, and do that legitimately. Now, what types of illnesses qualify for hospice? How would you answer that question? Any ideas? Most, you know, a lot of people think it's only for cancer, uh, but this is all. This is a list of various diseases that we've had uh, that I ministered to you know, people having all these diseases. It is simply the criteria that the disease is terminal and they have approximately six months. What are the services provided? Uh, there are usually a four-people team that's assigned to every person. The, an RN is the case manager. Uh, there's a nurse's aide that will go uh, usually three to five times a week to provide personal care, the bathing, etc. And there's a social worker and a chaplain. And the, the origin of hospice came out of a religious community in England, and it recognizes that we are spiritual people and so that every hospice that are aware of has a chaplain. Uh, although some are inching away from that and calling them counselors uh, versus uh, chaplains and so but that is available one thing also to remember of hospice is all these services excuse me are available seven twenty four but not present in your home seven twenty four so we had a number of people thinking that oh I just signed mom up for hospice they're going to be there twenty four hours a day and take care of them and I can go on with my life well that uh, we are available but not present uh, other things that are available is we have bereavement people that actually we stay in contact with a family hospice does for 13 months after the death. Often they're a massage therapist, uh, uh, train volunteers that sit. Uh, the hospice that I work for, we had people called hour volunteers. And so when we knew death was imminent, these are people that would just simply go and step with that person and that family during that period of time. Uh, these are the things that are also provided and paid for by hospice. All the medications that's related to the terminal diagnosis, including antibiotics. <clears throat> medical equipment, uh, medical supplies, uh, and Medicare pays 100% of the cost of that hospice service. So next week, we're, we're going to talk about cost. We're going to talk about uh, if you have to do direct caregiving. Are you parenting your parent? And we're going to talk about resources that are available. We're going to talk about uh, the important documents that you need to have on hand for yourself and you need to know where it is for your parents. And then we're going to talk quickly, uh, survivor's checklist. When death has happened, what are the things that you need to do, uh, organizations you need to contact, etc.